What would you say is one of the most controversial passages in our culture today? One that has so many different opposing interpretations to it. And also, how do we handle the disputes that are going on within the church? How are we to be above those things? And that's what we're going to be covering on today's podcast. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and let's get into it. Well, hey there, my friends. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you. As always, blessed to be with you guys as we study God's Word together. Isn't that amazing that we can just pause in all the hectic things going on? You turn on the news or you go on Twitter or whatever the case may be, and you're seeing all of the corruption, all of the bad news that continues to pour forth into our minds as we're scrolling and posting and talking about things. And there is a disturbance. And so I just want you guys to know, as we're going to dive into this next passage, there is no doubt that this is going to be touching on major controversial things. But what we do here on Stand Strong in the Word is that we present God's Word as best as I can through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit in the proper historical grammatical text in our interpretation. That's that's doing the hermeneutics, verse by verse, chronological study. And so today is no different. We have to look at the text, my friends, of what Paul is addressing when it comes to some of the things that we're going to be talking about. Now, preemptively, if you already already familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, then you know exactly why this is such a controversial passage. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be breaking it up into two parts. And the first one we're going to be covering today, so this might be a long one, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 as we continue our study here in 1 Corinthians. And on the heels of what we just talked about, this is important because when you look back at what we were were dealing with, one is you have to keep in a proper context, like I said. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, there was sin of incest in verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians 5. And then we go into the area of just a little sin. So even though people are not committing that uh, atrocious sin, they are committing sins. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So if you do not address and deal and repent of sin in its early stages, James tells us it will bring forth death. And then there's a matter, verses 9 through 13, about how we are to judge those in the church, not hypocritically, but rightly. But Paul continues now. That's not, he didn't just make his case and then he moves on. He is continuing this approach of addressing the sin that is in the camp in the Corinthian churches. And so today's title is, Who Will Not Inherit the Kingdom of God? And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you are driving, let me read this passage. But if you can join with me and get out the word of God, let's read it together. Notice what it says here. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases do you not know that we are to judge angels how much more than matters pertaining to this life 
So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be true or can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Then verse 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So right off the bat, you can see why this is very controversial in our culture today. Now, people on the left or progressives or people who, per, who pertain to be or profess to be, which is uh, an oxymoron, you cannot be an actively gay in a romantic relationship with someone of the same sex and even say that you're married to that person when God did not make marriage between a man and a man and a woman and a woman and whatever else. It's between a man and a woman who love and respect each other according to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 35. But the people who say that they're gay and Christian at the same time in the same sense in our romantic relationships, even if they argue it's a monogamous relationship, that they're not going around cheating, that doesn't, that doesn't matter. The Bible clearly teaches against the practice of homosexuality. Anything that runs contrary to the maleness and femaleness, right? So this is considering all the different genders or orientations that people say that they have other than a male and a female being attracted to the opposite sex. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But I say that because they look at this passage, they know they call it, they refer to it as a clobber passage. And a guy who uh, is divorced now, um, he said he came out of a conservative background. Again, I don't really know what that means. Comes off very nice. A lot of my friends have talked with him. I've examined some of his stuff. I mentioned him uh, a little bit um, in my book, Hijacking Jesus, How Progressive Christians Are Remaking Him, Taking Over the Church. His name is Colby Martin, and he embraces, obviously, same-sex unions, marriages. He performs them. He believes that people can be gay and Christian at the same time in the same sense, yada, 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 right? And he calls these things clobber passages, as does Andy Stanley, who's become more progressive and has denied the infallibility of the Old Testament and says Christians need to unhinge themselves from the Old Testament. Jewish scriptures and hold to just what are he refers to as essentials and he builds this dichotomy around the whole thing and so he's reinventing obviously certain Christian ethics along the way now I digress from that because the main focus here is even individuals like that and others I can tell you they refer to these as clobber meaning you take a traditional rigid passage like this and you have this rigid dogmatic interpretation and you beat people up over it. Well, that's not the case, my friends. That is not, again, contextual what Paul is doing. Paul, as an apostle called by God, is calling out sin firmly but lovingly. So Paul transitions to the disputes among churchgoers who are suing one another over property 
or even over money issues. So one of the things is people are defrauding one another or they're taking advantage of this uh, situation where the social um, elites already are going to win, no matter if they're guilty or not, when they go before the magistrate. And that was very limited back in the day. Matter of fact, biblical theology, uh, theology study Bible says this, quote, pagan judges often rendered unrighteous verdicts on account of bribes or a friendship with one of the plaintiffs. In Corinth, civil cases were decided by two magistrates who were elected for one year as the officers of record with jurisdiction in the city. Since only members of the upper class had access to the courts, those initiating lawsuits were members of the elite who apparently were willing to treat fellow Christians as legal enemies. The contrast between the ungodly and the Lord's people is deliberate. Paul has no sympathy for Christians who appeal to people who are unrighteous to make decisions in their favor rather than consult the fellow Christians who are holy. That's going back to verse one or chapter one, verse two of we are the saints. We are the holy ones set apart for God. So this idea that people who are claiming to be Christian and probably some of them were and they're very carnal and ignorant in their faith, they would use the system to their advantage and defraud their brother. That is wrong. So right off the bat, again, what we're dealing with is you have to deal with the sin in 1 Corinthians 5. We clearly know that there's behavior that even the pagans don't even do. So how far do you want to go down this debauchery? The unrighteous that he's referring to here in verse 1, in the Greek it means an unjust, wicked person who is a violator of the law. So you're actually a person who's been justified and, re- and redeemed through the blood of Christ that you're going to go to an unjust individual, a wicked person who's a violator, who uses the law to their advantage so you can use their position to your advantage. So notice the greed, and that's what we're going to look at now as we look in verses 2 and following. And again, this is going to build the case of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that people, what they do, they tend to just single out homosexuality because of the mass acceptance of it in our culture today. They don't look at these other sins. Now, you know, people on the other side of the aisle know what it means to defraud someone. They know that stealing, they know when people are twisting the law to their advantage, when there is corruption in the system, they know that that's unrighteous. Okay, Even if they're doing it. And that's what Paul's pointing out. So then when he asks these questions, or do you not know that the saints will, will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So the prophet Daniel speaks of this. This is actually interesting. Paul's referring to the Jewish scriptures where he refers to the day will come when we will participate in the judgment to come. And, and this is found in Daniel chapter 7, verse 22, when it says, Until the Ancient of Days came, and the judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus, we see that Christians are going to be judging the world and even angels who rebelled against God. And he's saying is, look it, God has called us to be set apart. God has called us to do things. Again, what, what, what did... What did um, Micah, that we are to do just to do to walk justly and to walk humbly before our God. Justice matters, and so as a Christian, we're not to get caught up in in, in judging trivial matters between one another, petty things. We have to understand that God has given us a superior role 
He's the ultimate judge. We know this and go and you look at John chapter 5 and Revelation 19. So if, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Again, he says, I say this to your shame. So the individuals that Paul refers to that have no standing in the church, that, that believers were going to, who are not followers of Jesus Christ. Again, these are non-believers. He says they have no respect. They have, they have no position in Christ. Therefore, they have no position in the church, in the community of God's people. And why are you going to people outside the church to address and to settle on matters pertaining to a brother or a sister in Christ when there's, when there's something that, that uh, could be resolved in the confines of the church. And he says, I say this to your shame because Paul is saying, and this is strong language, by the way. He's saying this disrupts the community of believers. The arrogance of the cultural elite. You know, it's like when somebody comes to Christ, but yet they still think that they can bring the ways of the world into their life and into the, into the church. Because of the culture at this time, they, they praised itself of its personal honor. And, 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 and we know that flies in the face of someone living according to the standards of Jesus Christ. So when he says, is no one among you wise enough? So if you look at the Greek culture and you look at the personal honor that meant everything to them, the fact that Christians were actively suing one another and they're winning cases through bribery, this reveals the disgrace among the Christian community. And Paul's pointing out, this isn't wisdom. Is there anyone wise? You guys think that by using the system to your advantage, you're being wise. No, you're being cunning through your bribery and through your greed. Again, these unbelievers, these are people that were civic magistrates of the Roman colony. And the Corinthian Christians, they were bringing these civil cases, even trivial matters, things that, that they would make a big issue that they weren't. And they'd go before the public magistrates. Remember, there was two active at the time. So that was it. It wasn't like you had, you know, this magistrate was very objective and and was uh, and, uh, somebody who interpreted the law justly and fairly. No, they would bring their civil cases before the public magistrates and even the social elite. They were using the lay system to try and convict lower class citizens as a power grab. So if you didn't have a lot of money and if you did not have a prestigious position in the culture and you weren't, uh, you weren't well esteemed and looked to, it was over for you. Never mind though, when you do look at Romans chapter 12 verses 14 through 18, what, what, what are we, what ought we to do? How are we to live our lives? Encounter, that's counterintuitive to the ways of the world. The ways of the world is about living for self, worship yourself, it's all about you. It's about your journey. It's about your truth. It's about your desires and fulfilling that very hedonistically, very selfishly. No, the Bible says in Romans 12 that we're to bless those who persecute us. We're to bless and do not curse. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to weep with those who are weeping. So the question is, you know, what Paul's telling them in, in 1 Corinthians, you guys are not doing that. You guys are persecuting one another. You guys are, are ripping each other off for, for, for um, financial gain. Your greed is consuming you. You're not rejoicing with the fallow brother or sister in Christ. You're not weeping with them when they're suffering. You're causing the, the mourning. Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
That was not what was happening. They're not living according to the mandates of Scripture. They're not living out the ways of Jesus Christ in their life. And so he says in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brother. So it is better to lose out, Paul says, in material gain than to cause division among believers in the church. You know, that reminds me of uh, a guy that I knew years ago in his business practices. He always came about as he was above reproach. And I would consult him occasionally, but he would mainly come to me for, for guidance, for counsel. And over time, the more that I got to know him, again, I wasn't around his business practices. I never really met any of his employees, but he always presented himself as someone who was honorable and yet he had multiple, multiple people through, the, through years of doing uh, business who either sued him or, you know, he said defrauded him. And I think over time, the guy was not a con artist, but he definitely was a very malicious person. Didn't come out that way publicly, so it was hard to see it. And this reminds me of that individual, including other people that you know, I'm sure, listening to this, who have taken advantage of situations. Um, and so rather than lose you know, out in a business deal or a property, right, or money, rather than lose out a material gain, they'll do everything in their power because greed motivates them. That's their idol. They will cause division, even if it's among believers in the church. That's why we have to be very careful and as a pastor, I've had to confront, I mean, I, I can't even tell you the number of times I've had to deal with the defrauding that happens even within the local church. So-and-so has a business, so-and-so in the church reaches out to that person, they both have businesses, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, or hey, wouldn't this be great? You got a fish, you know, symbol on your uh, business card. Oh, this is great. You know, this guy will never screw me over. And what happens? Okay, so we have to be very discerning. But again, remember, much of the suing that was going on between the people in Corinth, it, it did reveal that there was this malicious attitude that was consuming the Corinthians. And it was, and then what it was doing, you guys, and you can follow the trail here. Okay, just, just see it to its, to its conclusion. It was feeding more sexual sin in the end. So not only was there malicious attitude and, and malicious intent that was going on and why people were suing one another for material gain, rather than like Paul says, hey, let it go. Suffer loss for the greater good, for your brother, for your sister to stay united. No, instead of that, they were consumed by that. And one of the signs that you can see or one of the areas of these individuals' lives that they were taking their material gain in, right, investing into was their sexual desires. And that's so sad, my friends. So instead of suffering together as followers of Christ, what was happening in the church, and Paul was calling the sin out, is that they were inflicting harm on their fellow brother. Now we then see in the last three chapters, or excuse me, the last three verses in verses 9 through 11, where then he poses these questions, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So just like he was making the case here in verses one through seven, don't you know 
that defrauding one another, these grievances, remember he said in verse one, there are these deed or these matters between you guys of how you guys are abusing the system. You're taking these wicked and corrupt magistrates, these violators of the law, so that they can issue not just a statement, but that they can issue a rendering on behalf of you so that you win in the end. In fact, no one does. Okay, so he says, you know that is wrong. You know these disputes that are taking place is absolutely wrong. So then he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? So people who are living sinful, debauchery lives who do not know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. In fact, many of them willingly and disobediently, okay, this is willfully, reject Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying here, do not be deceived. Let me tell you about these people who are unrighteous. Let me tell you about these people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, at the heart of it is anyone who rejects Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And some of the reasons why they've rejected Christ and why they will not inherit the kingdom of God is because they've chosen to worship self. That could be manifested when he's saying, do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral. So that could be a huge reason. I've counseled with people who, even as a Christian, where they just quench the work of the Holy Spirit and they rebelled against God because they went full-fledged in adultery, full-fledged in sexual sin, and they're not willing to give it up. I remember counseling an individual and he married and he was in porn and he just says, I want this more than I want to be married. I want this more than even praying. And I'm like, well, why are you here with me? Why did you set up this counseling appointment? And because he felt like if I couldn't help him, then it was, it was a lost cause. And, but he didn't really want help. He didn't really want to stay married. He wanted to continue to pursue uh, his porn addiction. Now that's different in the sense that this, if this man truly knew Christ as Lord and Savior, but was quenching the work of the Holy Spirit, not growing in his faith. He wasn't adding to his faith. He wasn't standing strong in his faith. He wasn't equipped with the, the word of God, with the armor of God. Then obviously he's a, it's a loss of rewards and he's a very, he'll be a very ineffective, right? Christian, not one of the soldiers that you want to go to battle with right against the enemy. But this is referring to a sexually immoral individual who just lives for sex in all forms of it. The idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice, and we're going to get to the cement, homosexuality. The word key, the key thing here is practice. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So what Paul's actually doing, my friends, this is so important when he was talking about the earlier defrauding that was taking place and the corruption in that system that people are using to their advantage because of selfish gain. He's calling out all the sin that is circulating as a result of all this. So it's clear that there are those who profess the system of doctrines of Christianity. But just because somebody may say, oh yeah, Christianity, the system itself, love thy neighbor, uh, sacrifice, you know, the founder of Christianity, you know, Jesus, as people refer to him as in this world, that's all well and good. Like, yeah, I don't deny any of that. So they may profess some system of doctrine or some moral ethic pertaining to Christianity, 
but yet they voluntarily choose not to obey or practice its tenets and values. Instead, what are they practicing? What are they pursuing? Sexual morality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, thieving, greed, drunkenness, rivalry, whatever the case may be. So let's explain why Paul prefaces his response in these rhetorical ways of saying, do not be deceived. First and foremost, this Greek word is planio. What it means is to wander, to go astray, to move about without a purpose. So when he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? An unrighteous person is someone who does not know Christ as the Lord and Savior. Jesus says, he who has a son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. Look at John 3.16 and John 3.36 and read the entire passage in John chapter 8 and also look at 1 John chapter 4, 5, and 6 and you will see it laid out there, the difference between a righteous person and an unrighteous person. Again, it's not calling out a particular sin. It's calling out the unrighteousness and we as Christians are not associate with the unrighteous. We'll get to that in a minute. So this word, do not be deceived by this. And so much of the church has become deceived or they make it such an issue of a clobber passage that they miss the context altogether. Paul's saying, guys, do not wander away. Do not go astray. Do not move around without a purpose. Understand what God's word is. This is important because Paul's affirming what he tells the church in Ephesus later in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that genuine faith produces good works. And remember, James points out that the absence of good works is an indication of having no saving faith. So an unrighteous person is not living out a life of good works because of their faith. It's absent. James 2 verse 26 says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So now, as we understand that people who are sexually immoral, an unrighteous person will not inherit the kingdom of God as somebody who does not have Christ in their life. They've rejected Christ. And the Greek word here is, is, is pornos, right? Porneia. This is somebody whose life is not for good works, but is rather a, a person who is dead. Okay? Because remember, for as the, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. There is no faith, therefore there are no works that are honorable to the Lord. Instead, they're practicing, they're committing an act or living out a life that is dishonoring to the Lord. Now, this word homosexuality, I'm going to refer to Kevin DeYoung, Dr. Kevin DeYoung. He's a pastor. He writes uh, in his book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? He says, Paul's term for men who practice homosexuality, it's also referred to in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, and is derived from two words, arson, which is man, and koite, which is bed. This is in reference when you look at the Greek terminology in the Septuagint in Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20, verse 13. And this is important when we're studying Paul because Paul, when he wrote his letters, he always referred back to the Jewish scriptures. He always believed and affirmed the infallibility of the Jewish scriptures, which Jesus Christ fulfilled. And so notice once again, as he's pulling this term homosexuality, he's referring back to the Greek text, the Septuagint in the book of Leviticus with this Greek word, when you take the two, right? And there's no other instance of these of this word that's arsenokoite, arsenokoite. Okay, so there's no other use of this up to the point where Paul's referring to it right here, right now. So this is so important. 
because now he's drawing on something very specific that is happening. Even many revisionist scholars agree that Paul coined the term from Leviticus. There may also be an allusion to the verdict of Leviticus 20 verse 13 where it says both of them have committed an abomination. Also in Romans chapter 1 verse 24 where it says God gave them up to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So this terminology that Paul's using is an abomination. It is living a dishonorable life with your bodies. Keep that in mind of what Paul's going to later say as we go into our next uh, part of this in our next podcast in verses 12 and following. All right, let's continue. Leviticus uses strong language in denouncing homosexual behavior, calling it an abomination. Outside of Leviticus, the Hebrew word is toipa, which appears 43 times in Ezekiel and 68 times in the rest of the Old Testament. Usually with respect to especially grievous sins, we cannot reduce toipa to a mere social taboo or ritual uncleanliness. The word generally signifies something the Lord despises. Now, if you look at, like, for example, Deuteronomy 12, verse 31, also Proverbs, it's talking about there are six things, remember, that the Lord hates. Proverbs declares seven that are an abomination to him. So as a revisionist, authors are quick to point out all the sexual sins in Leviticus 18 are lumped together under the term abominations. This is Leviticus 18, verse 26, Leviticus 18, 27, and Leviticus 18, verses 29 and 30. But only male with male sex is singled out by itself as an abomination. In fact, it is the only forbidden act given this label in the entire holiness code. The death penalty for both parties also speaks to the seriousness of the offense in God's eyes when you're referring back to it in the Old Testament. So what I have to say in response to this, and when you're talking about homosexuality specifically, the practice of it, right? Arsenal coite, when a man lying in a bed with another man, committing something that is unnatural, that is dishonorable, and is a violation of God's natural order. That's what homosexuality is. It is a sin, my friends, that violates the natural order of God. Now, also speaking clearly to when you're dealing with what a swindler, what an adulterer, these are people who are choosing to live a life for themselves that runs contrary to God's natural order. God does not commit people to commit adultery. God does not commit people to commit idolatry. You should have no other gods before you. And when you're choosing to pursue paganistic rituals or other uh, religious practices, when you choose to do that and you're not honoring God, that is an unrighteous individual. When you are a thief, when you are greedy, when your life is consumed, and we always talk about corruption, it's an easy sin for all of us, people on the right, people on the left, and everybody in between. No one can stand somebody who is absolutely and totally greedy. We know the consequences and the problems that come as a result of a drunkard when they get abusive, when it's inflicting harm. Or I've had family members in the past who've died of alcoholism, some on my dad's side of the family. Pure poison in the system, right? Rivalers, swindlers, people who live to take advantage, people who we call sociopaths or psychopaths, people who can mimic others, all for the purpose of taking advantage of people. 
there's a lot of talk in in the news and on social media today when it comes to swindlers, people who take other people's money, they take them for a ride or in human trafficking. So again, this is not just unrighteous behavior, but these are unrighteous people. So this is not just about practicing homosexuality. The reason why I laid out a stronger case when it deals with homosexuality is because you have a lot of people and when you look at the clear text of scripture, there's a lot of people who do not believe that that is a sin. They know everything else is a sin. Oh yeah, adultery is wrong. Um, you know, the Bible very clearly teaches from the Ten Commandments and on that you shouldn't have any of the gods before you. Uh, yeah, drinking alcohol, getting drunk and being abusive is wrong, so on and so forth. But when it comes to homosexuality, people are like, no. that They knew in 1 Corinthians 5 though that sexual sin of incest was is morally wrong and not... Um, presentable before God and something to be honorable. Uh, you know, it's not an honorable life. It's not an honorable relationship. That sexual act is sin. We know this, but when it comes to other kinds of sins, we don't play the game to, to pick and choose. So it's glaringly clear that homosexuality along with swindling, rivalry, all of that is a sin and the people who are unrighteous, who do not know Jesus Christ, are violating the natural order of God and anyone who claims otherwise is misrepresenting biblical teaching clearly within the Jewish scriptures from the beginning of how God created male and female humanity and also clearly in the New Testament in Romans 1, 24, 27 and 1 Timothy 1, 10. Now, Robert Gagnon, he's a leading theologian on, on human sexuality. He points out that scripture identifies that homosexuality is a first-tier sexual offense along with adultery, incest, and bestiality. So even though they're different forms of sexual offenses, they're all within the first tier of sexual offenses. And this has always been a historic position of the church over the centuries, that the Bible understands that homosexual practice is an extreme sexual offense. So I have to say this, in all love and respect, according to scripture, a person cannot be a gay affirming person who is romantically and sexually active and be a Christian who's supposedly living out the gospel at the same time. A gay person may practice a form of Christianity, just like a swindler or a drunkard who, who goes to church or says he prays or she prays, but that's not the same as holding to the fundamentals of the Orthodox Christian faith. And that's what we have to keep in mind. And so in closing, this is the gospel message. This is what's so powerful is that we're not to live no matter the sin. And that's the thing, my friends, Jesus doesn't save us from the sins that we commit, he saves us because we've been separated from him. And as a result, we have been redeemed. This body of death has been made alive. The old man has been made new. And that's what he says. And such were some of you, meaning you guys lived an unrighteous life, whether it was, you know, you identify yourself as a homosexual, but the bottom line is you were a sinner. Yes, those types of sins committed and practice in an unrighteous behavior is dishonorable to the Lord. And Christ has saved you from that. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So this verse captures in verse 11, the spiritual renewal of a person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. And Paul takes a measured approach because here it's like he, he gets descriptive about these types of sins that you shouldn't be committing. The ways of the world, that's how they live. An unrighteous person doesn't know Christ, that's how they live. But he says, you were like that at one point, but now you've been delivered from that. The word washed is mean you've been cleansed from your sin. 
You went from the old man to the new man. You were sanctified. Not only were you cleansed, you were set apart now for an entirely new life to live for good works. You're living bad. You're living out your bad works, living out in your sin. And now you're called to do something meaningful before God. Because remember, faith without good works is dead. So you who put their, your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've been washed, cleansed from your sin through the blood of Christ. You've been sanctified. You've been set apart for his purposes now rather than using your body for the purposes of the sin. And you've been justified. Meaning, Remember, you've been declared in right standing before God. John Calvin, a key figure in Protestantism, says by the term washing, he, that is Paul, makes an allusion to baptism. And under the one department includes the whole of the renovation that is conferred by the Holy Spirit. Martin Luther, another Protestant reformer, he writes regarding justification in his commentary, quote, God pronounces us righteous and we are really and truly considered righteous in his sight because Christ, our substitute, lives. And that, my friends, is the power of the gospel. And that is something we cannot neglect, nor as we walk before him to abandon we are called, as 1 Corinthians 1.30, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, when Paul says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's why in Romans 5 verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Romans 8 verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So the Bible is not a gay bashing book that singles out homosexuals. The Bible is a book that tells us the truth of history. What happened from the beginning of creation? What happened in the fall? And what happened through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus that brings out redemption? And what will happen in the end? What will come? And that is the consummation that we have this promise from Jesus Christ that he has his reward in hand and he will come home and restore all things. He will come back here, you guys, and he'll make all things new. We have that promise. God will make all things new to its original state from what it was when he created Adam and Eve in the garden. We will have that fellowship with him one day. So who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? A sinner who rejects Jesus Christ, a person who does not believe they need Jesus to be saved. That is a person who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So whether you've been consumed with drugs, sexual morality, if you're listening and you've committed adultery, or you look in your life right now, and even if you are a Christian, but yet you've been consumed by greed and you're defrauding people around you because of material gain, you need to repent, my friends. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day of salvation. Today is a day where you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus, who is God in the flesh, from the dead. You ask him to come into your life and to be your Savior, to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness and that the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, who's been called to buy us, to to, he's our down payment. He is our guaranteed deposit of our inheritance to come. He preserves and protects and secures your salvation. 
and you say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Holy Spirit, come into my life and dwell me. I want to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. I want to be set apart for your good works and not to advance my own selfish gain. My friends, that is a believer who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. If you have any questions on this, if things have stirred up in your mind or you're struggling or there's situation in your home life, I want to encourage you guys to in, you know to send an email at info at stanstrongministries.org. Always go to our websites available for you guys. We have our podcasts. We have articles and videos and books that I've written and one in particular that just came out with focus on the family. So if you're a parent or a grandparent or you're a pastor who works with kids or you have somebody on staff who works with children or with students or college students, I encourage you guys to pick up my new book called Parenting Gen Z, Guiding Your Child Through a Hostile Culture. It is a biblical worldview book that is developed and designed with parent practices to help parents continue to stand strong in their faith. So get advantage, take advantage, my friends, of that resource. You can go to standstrongministries.org right there on the homepage. You can click on the banner where you'll see Parenting Gen Z and find out all the information about this wonderful book that will help you moms and dads and all those who are working with kids to continue to model the faith to them. Thank you guys for listening. Until next time, keep standing strong in the Word of God. (music) 